According to the Social Security Administration, in 2012, the most popular baby boy name was Jacob. The most popular baby girl name was Sophia. Chances are, at some point, if you've been around babies in the last couple of years, you've probably met a Jacob or a Sophia. And I would guess that you've either met or heard of many of the names in the top 10 on the Social Security list. For girls, names like Emma, Olivia, Ava, or Emily. On the boys' side, William, Mason, Ethan, Liam. In fact, you might even notice that some of those names are represented here at New Hope. But listen, even if you don't know anything about baby names or you just ignore every time you hear a baby's name, chances are you would probably at least recognize some of the names in the top 100. And the reason that's true is because a lot of those names are biblical names. And since we're gathered here today to study the Word of God, I would guess that you'd at least recognize some of the names from the Bible. That said, if you're here today and you have no background whatsoever with the Bible and you wouldn't recognize any biblical name, I want you to know that I'm really glad you're here too. And I'm convinced that God has brought you here for a reason. But for most of you, I think you would probably recognize some of the names in the top 100. By my own unofficial count, 30 of the 100 names, top 100 names, are biblical names. Of the top 20 baby boy names alone, 13 are biblical. Names like Joseph, Daniel, Noah, Jacob, Elijah, Matthew, and so on. But no matter how far you scroll down the list, in the Social Security website, it goes down to the top 1,000 names for boys and girls. No matter how far you scroll down, you will not find the name Epaphroditus. You'll find lots of other names that are a little bit strange or... um, Actually, I should be careful in case some of you have a nephew named this. I'll say um, ones that I'm not as familiar with, all right? So names like, especially on the boys' side, Titan, Bridger, Mustafa. There is some debate in our house this week. Is that the name of the lion in the Lion King or is it Mufasa? I'm not sure. Mustafa, legend, blaze, lyric. But there's no Epaphroditus. Now, the truth is, I get it, all right? I get it. Epaphroditus doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And I'm not sure what you would call him for short, right? Would you call him Pappy, Ditus, Epaphro? I'm not really sure. Besides that, who knows anything about Epaphroditus anyway? My guess is that if I were to take an informal survey on the way into the building this morning, I would say, tell me everything you know about Epaphroditus. I'm guessing that would be a very short conversation with most of you, right? Who is Epaphroditus? And yet, strangely enough, in the middle of the book of Philippians, all these great theological truths we've been talking about for the first two chapters, smack dab in the middle of Philippians, we have six verses devoted to Epaphroditus. That's strange. Now, to be fair, he spends roughly about as much time talking to Timothy as well. You might know a little bit more about Timothy, and in fact, the name's a little bit more popular as well. Just in case you're wondering, it's number 120 on the baby boy list. Now, the question is why? Why does he do this? Why would he spend a combined 12 verses talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus? So far in the Philippians, we've been talking about lots of great things, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. We've been talking about the humility of Christ and how that should transform us and make us want to serve others. We've been talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we've been talking a lot about this idea that we should live out our faith together. And yet now, in the middle of the book, he seemingly takes a break for 12 verses to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Why? Why does he do that? And maybe more importantly for us this morning, why should we care? Right? Why should we care what he says about Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, as you might imagine, I would argue that we should care. And I would argue that there is a reason why this passage is here. So let's read it, and hopefully it will become clear to us why Paul spends 12 verses talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. Let me remind you again, this is the word of God. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I know we already read that once, but I think it's worth reading again, because remember, this is the word of God, and I think it's important that you hear from him. And the question is, what do we do with this passage, right? At first glance, this seems like one of those verses or one of those passages that makes you regret preaching through a, verse, or a book verse by verse. I mean, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that will preach, right? Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this idea of Christ becoming incarnate, becoming man, and dying on the cross for our sins and how we should live likewise, that too will preach. But what do you do with this? What do you do with Timothy and Epaphroditus? This is a section of scripture that is commonly referred to as a travel log, meaning that it's communicating primarily Paul's travel plans. The primary purpose of what he's doing here seems to be communicating to the Philippians, I'm going to send Epaphroditus now, receive him. Hopefully Timothy will come soon, receive him also, and if it works out, I, Paul, might also come. That's the primary purpose of what he's doing here, right? So why should we care? Why should we care? I think there might be a temptation for us to simply dismiss this, right? After all, we don't live in Philippi. We don't live there, and so Paul's travel plans don't seem to mean as much to us. And so there might be a temptation for us to read this passage and think, oh, that's nice about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and just move on to Philippians 3, 1 through 11, which is another verse that we'll preach, right? It's easy for us to just simply think, well, this is just about Timothy and Epaphroditus and traveling. Who cares? But listen, there is a reason why God, in his infinite wisdom, put this passage here. There is not one word in scripture that is wasted, let alone one passage. And you can rest assured that in God's infinite wisdom, he knew that it wouldn't just be the Philippians hearing this message, that it would be us here even at New Hope this morning. And so I would argue that not only is this a verse that we should pay attention to, this is a verse that we have much to learn from. Most notably, as we notice what Paul is commending in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, as we notice what he's commending, we start to learn what is truly commendable. And we start to learn the types of things that we should emulate. To be sure, we're not saying that we will live these things out in the same way as Timothy and Epaphroditus. I want you to hear me clearly here. I'm not saying that you should hear this passage and think, okay, my goal this week is to deliver a letter to Philippi. That would be really strange, right? Like, I don't know why you would want to do that. I don't even know if we could find Philippi. It would be difficult, right? Like, why would we do that? That's not the point here to just follow their example and do exactly what they did. The point is not to think, oh, I should risk my life to deliver a letter to someone. That's not the point. But the point is simply this, that as we see the attitudes and as we see the ways that Timothy and Epaphroditus thought, our goal is to live in such a way so as to represent the way they live. Or in other words, to follow their example. Again, not in a one-to-one way, but seeing their attitudes, seeing the way they thought about the importance of the gospel. That's our goal this morning. As we see what Paul commends in Timothy and Epaphroditus, we want to think carefully if we are living like these godly two men. 
The question is, what is it that he commends in Timothy and Epaphroditus? We'll look first at Timothy, again. we'll take them one at a time. So Timothy, again, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Verse 20, I think is key here. There's two reasons why Paul seems to be commending Timothy. There's two reasons why he is sending Timothy. Because Timothy loved people. He loved the Philippians, and he loved Jesus more than anything. Look at first at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now that's pretty lofty praise, right? For Paul to say about Timothy, I have no one like him. There's no one else like him. There's no one else who is as genuinely concerned for your welfare. That is lofty praise. And the truth is, this is a rare thing. We talked about this earlier in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. It is rare when someone is genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. Before we dismiss this as Timothy just being a biblical hero and let ourselves off the hook, let us remember that this command or this idea of being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others is not just something directed towards Timothy or something that we should commend in Timothy. This is something that is expected of every Christian. Listen, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, it's expected that you would look out for the interest of others. Romans 15 verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Or even more relevant for our context this morning, earlier on in Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So hear me, this is not just something that Timothy is supposed to do, be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. This is something that every Christian is called to do, to look out for the interests of others. But again, let us acknowledge, just as we did at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, this is difficult. This is difficult. For most of us in this room, I would venture to say that we're interested in the welfare of others, but not necessarily genuinely concerned. For example, when you find out that someone in this church congregation is sick, or you find out that they lost a job, or you find out that they have marital difficulties, or that someone they loved has died, I would guess that for most of us, we're interested in hearing that news and probably we're bothered by that news but I'm not sure if we're always genuinely concerned. I think there's a difference between being interested in news or being bothered by news and being genuinely concerned. So to illustrate that difference, let me give you an example. All right? So let's just say that you have a son or daughter who's in college. And I know that a lot of you do not have sons or daughters in college. So just use your imagination with me here for a second. And for those of you who are or who do have sons or daughters in college, I'm not trying to scare you by giving you this example, right? But let's say that you have a son or daughter in college and you get a letter in the mail that says that they have been placed on academic probation and that if they don't clean up their grades in the next semester, they're going to be kicked out of school. Now, I don't know if a college would actually send that letter to a parent, okay? I fully admit, I don't know if that would actually happen, but for the sake of our illustration, let's just say that it, it could happen, right? So they send you this letter, and they say, your son or daughter is about to be kicked out of school. What would be your response? I'm guessing that you would be interested, right? I think that's fair to say. I doubt that you'd just take the letter and throw it away and be like, oh, well, it'll work itself out. I doubt that you would respond that way. And I'm guessing that you would be bothered. In fact, you might be particularly bothered by this news, right? But I'm also guessing that there would be a genuine concern. Here's what I mean. I mean that eventually 
there would be some action on your part, right? Genuine concern manifests itself in action. I highly doubt that you would just take that letter and never speak to your child about it. Now, if you did choose to do that, maybe it would be for a reason. You feel like they need to learn from their mistakes. So I would argue that even that is action because you're deliberately deciding. But most of you would not take that tactic, right? Instead, what you do is you would call up your son or daughter almost immediately. Your genuine concern would manifest itself in action. You would call them and hopefully you would say Christ-like things to them, I hope, right? But you would probably have a stern conversation and you would try to figure out what's going on. You might even call the school itself and say, I don't know if I understand this letter, explain it to me. Maybe you would call and you would set up a tutor. Maybe you would call a professor, right? Maybe you would call your son or daughter and you'd give them a list of rules. If you want to keep getting my money for college, this is what you need to do, right? But the point is that your concern would manifest itself in action. Genuine concern leads to action. Now, in this case, your concern may be somewhat selfishly motivated, right? You don't want all your money to be thrown down the drain. But nevertheless, there is a genuine concern that leads to action. Now, contrast that with how we respond to news in the church. All right, let's, let's just, again, use our imagination for a second. Imagine that we hear of a couple, Fred and Doris. I, I'm obviously picking that because I don't think there are any Fred or Dorises here today. But if you just walked in off the street and your name is Fred and Doris, that is incredible, number one. And number two, I promise this example is not about you. But I think that said, there's probably someone that you could think of that this type of thing has happened. So let's, hear, let's imagine that there's a couple named Fred and Doris in the congregation. And you hear that Fred and Doris are struggling in their marriage. Right? I'm guessing that that would bother you. And I'm guessing that you'd be interested. But would it genuinely concern you? Would it move you to action? Right? Would you start brainstorming? What are some things I could do to help Fred and Doris? What are some things I could do by the grace of God to be a part of their reconciliation? Would you spend hours on your knees praying for Fred and Doris? I think for most of us, the answer is probably not. Now, maybe sometimes we don't get involved because we don't know what to do. I understand that. Or maybe we feel like we don't want to step over bounds and get involved in something we shouldn't be involved in. But I would guess that maybe part of the reason why we don't get involved is because we lack a genuine concern. How often do we turn our heads the other way when someone is struggling? Or to make it more personal, how often have you turned your head the other way when someone is struggling? How often do we just ignore the obvious facts because to, to acknowledge the obvious facts would mean that we would have to do something? We can all probably think of examples where deep down we knew that there was someone in our care group or someone in our lives here at this church who is really struggling in their faith. And yet we just pretended like it wasn't happening because we didn't want to get involved. Or we knew that there was a marriage that was on the rocks and we didn't say anything because we just didn't want to get involved. And so we pretended like it wasn't true. In our minds, we just stopped acknowledging that this could be a reality. But here's the question. Is that being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others? Now to be clear here, I'm not talking about being busybodies or meddling. All right? And I'm not talking about concern manifesting itself in gossip. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being involved in others' lives to the point that you can help them and you're looking for ways to help them grow in their faith. What I am talking about is that you are involved in other lives to the point that you can help them navigate the difficulties of life. I'm talking about genuine concern manifesting itself in loving action. And that last phrase is really important, loving action. Right? Genuine concern will oftentimes manifest itself in loving 
action. Now, admittedly, to get to this level where we are able to get involved in loving action is going to be difficult, right? And it's going to, in some cases, require a mindset shift or a culture shift. We're going to have to stop looking at the church as social acquaintances and instead as family. Instead as family. If you look through the New Testament over and over, you see this idea that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are a part of the family of God. But I think if we get to that point where we start looking at each other as family, we start manifesting our genuine concern and loving action, I would guess that this might set us apart, that this might make us different in the world around us. After all, this is what set Timothy apart, that he was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Fact is that all around us, whether it's here in Terrytown, whether it's where you work or the neighborhood you live in or even your family reunion, there are people who are lonely. And there are people who wonder deep down, does anyone really care about me? And that is where, if we are a church that is genuinely concerned in the welfare of others, we can be different. We can stick out. It's one of the things that should make us different. It's one of the things that should make us attractive to a world that is desperately looking for someone who cares. Genuine concern for the welfare of others. That's what set Timothy apart. That said, we need to be careful. I want, to hear, I want you to hear me clearly. We have to be careful to say this, that Timothy's genuine concern for the welfare of others ultimately came from his love for Christ. Listen, the reason he cared is because he loved Jesus more than anything. Look at verses 20 to 22. Again, verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. I think verse 21 is fascinating, right? Verse 20 talks about Timothy being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And then in verse 21, he says this. He says, They all seek their own interests. Now, given what you read in verse 20, you would expect the second half of verse 21 to say this. They all seek their own interests, not the interest of others. That's what you would expect it to say. But that's not what it does say, right? It says instead, they all seek their interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So why does he do that? Why does Paul say, instead of saying they all seek their own interests, not the interests of others, why does he say they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ? Here's why. Here's why I think he does that. Because seeking the interest of others is seeking the interest of Christ. To love Christ is to love others. The first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it. That's interesting language, right? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where the tapestry of Philippians 2 starts coming together. That's where we start to see the beauty of even this passage. Because in verses 1 through 4, we were challenged to set aside our own interests for the sake of others. And then in 5 through 11, Christ was lifted up as the example of why we do this. And now here at the end of chapter 2, we have two examples of what this looks like. In the persons of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Listen, hear this. Seeking the interest of Christ means being genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. You will not seek the welfare of others until you first know Christ, until you are motivated by what he's done for you. Listen, if I were to stand up here today and tell you, seek the interest of others, 
and I did not connect that to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, I would be setting you up for failure. In fact, I would be asking you to do something that is impossible. If I were to say to you, hey, concern yourself with the welfare of others, seek the interest of others above your own, and I did not connect that to the work of Christ, I would be asking you to do the impossible. You cannot love others until you first love Christ. Now maybe some of you are saying, well, hold on. Hold on, I know non-believers and they seem to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. In fact, maybe there's someone that immediately comes to your mind right now. You think, this non-believer clearly cares for other people. And the truth is that oftentimes non-believers, those who don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, put us to shame in terms of their generosity and their effort in reaching the community. But hear me, I'm convinced of this. Apart from Christ, we cannot ultimately love others. A true love for others must spring from a relationship with Christ. Love for others apart from Christ is ultimately self-love. Here's what I mean. People give because they want the praise. Or people serve because they want the pat on the back. Or people sacrifice because it makes them feel good. But it's only when you have turned to Jesus Christ, only then, only when the Spirit dwells in you, can you truly concern yourself with the interest of others? That is why he says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. Because he looks at the world around him and no doubt there were people who were non-Christians who were serving and giving. But he says there's no one like Timothy because he is genuinely concerned for others' interests. And the reason why he says that is because the Spirit of God was at work in Timothy. It's only when we see the beauty of the cross, it's only when we see the greatness of Christ dying on the cross, only then can we live for others. Only then can we set aside our own interests because that's what Jesus did for us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us to love other people. Timothy loved others, but hear me, the reason he loved others is because he loved Christ more than anything. And the same thing was true for Epaphroditus. Look at verses 25 through 30. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So as near as we can tell, this is what happened with Epaphroditus. The Philippians heard that Paul was in prison. And in Paul's day, when you were in prison, the state wouldn't necessarily take care of your needs. It would have to be friends and family members, or in Paul's case, church members. So the Philippians heard about Paul's situation where he's in prison and they decide that they're going to take up a collection. In chapter four, Philippians has made clear that they were generous with this collection. They collected this money and they, uh, however they chose, maybe Epaphroditus volunteered, who knows? But somehow Epaphroditus was the one who was chosen to take the collection to Paul. It also seems that he was probably sent to minister to Paul for a period of time as well. This was extraordinarily generous on the part of the Philippians. Right, they're collecting this money and they're taking care of Paul. But it was also extraordinarily generous on the part of Epaphroditus. He was taking his time, but he was also risking. He was risking his health and his life to travel to Rome. Travel on this day was not easy. Right? This was before the days of Metro North Railroad, or whatever the equivalent would have been for him, right? Philippi Railroad North, I don't know. Right? Like, this is in the days before travel was easy like it is now. 
In fact, for Epaphroditus, it nearly cost him his life. Twice, twice in this passage, Paul reminds us that Epaphroditus nearly lost his life completing the work of Christ. We're not sure what happened, but likely on the way to Rome, he got sick. In fact, he got so sick, that it, so sick or so ill that he nearly died. He nearly died. And yet, despite the risk to his health, he kept carrying on to complete the work. And again, while we may never find ourselves in that situation where we have to risk our health to deliver a letter, we can say that we can try to model or to emulate the selflessness of Epaphroditus. He was willing to risk his life for Paul. He was willing to risk his life for the Philippians. His attitude had nothing to do with him and everything to do with others. In fact, his attitude is captured perfectly in verse 26. Verse 26 says this, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You would expect that it would say he was distressed because he was ill. That's what you would expect. But it says he was distressed because you heard that he was ill. In other words, the reason why he was concerned was not because he was ill. He was concerned because the Philippians would be worried about him. Right? Even, as the, even as he's nearly on his deathbed, he's concerned for the Philippians, that they're worried about him. One of the great joys about being in our church in Amarillo, Texas, is that there were a lot of older people in the church. And by older people, I mean 80s and 90s. And let me just say this before I say what I'm going to say about those 80 and 90-year-olds in Emerald. My prayer for this congregation is that not only would we have ethnic diversity in the days to come, and not only would we have socioeconomic diversity, but we would have more age diversity. We need more 80 and 90-year-olds here at this church. I'm telling you, the people in Amarillo, the 80 and 90-year-olds, the senior adults, they were some of our best friends. And I don't mean that we had them over and played cards or watched TV or those types of things. I just mean that they really cared about us. They were genuinely concerned for our interests. I had no bigger encouragers at the church in Amarillo than the 80 to 90-year-olds. They came, became some really good friends of our church, or of our church, but of me personally as well. The sad part, of course, is that many of them died. Just the way it works. But here's what I noticed about these godly people. The godliest ones, when I would go to visit them in the hospital, the ones that I made these friendships with, I would go to them, and in some cases, they would literally be on their deathbed. But here's what I noticed. Almost always, they would find a way to get the conversation about me. I would be asking them about them and how they're doing and all these things, and always, they would bring it back to me. They would say, well, tell me about your kids. Tell me about the adoption. Tell me how your wife's doing. And they would, over and over, they would always bring it back to me. Here they were dying, and yet their concern was for other people. When I went to the hospital, my goal was always to minister to them, and yet I always came away feeling like they ministered to me. Listen, the reason that's true, the reason that's true is because they had attitudes like Timothy. They had attitudes like Epaphroditus. They were looking out for the interests of others. One of the coolest stories from our adoption happened at a garage sale that we were hosting to raise money for the adoption. Adoption... uh, Most of you probably know that we adopted a daughter from Congo here in the last couple months. And as you may expect, adoption is expensive. And so one weekend we had this huge garage sale to try to raise funds for the adoption. And a bunch of people from our church in Texas donated items. In fact, they hosted the garage sale as well. And, And so over the course of the weekend, a bunch of people from the church stopped by to buy things from the garage sale, but just to give us money for the adoption also. Honestly, it was overwhelming the generosity that we received. There were multiple stories that just blew us away. But one of the ones that moved me most is that there was a lady in our church who was really, really sick, really sick. 
And she was in the midst of treatments at the time, and you could tell that her body was just ravaged by the treatments that she was facing. It was taking a toll on her physically. It was taking a toll on her family emotionally. And I knew that it was taking a toll on their family financially too. I knew that they were, they were just low on money. So this lady shows up at our garage sale. She looks around, and she goes home because she hadn't brought any money with her. She just happened to be driving by, and she comes and she brings us money. And I knew that she didn't have any money to give. I knew she didn't have any money to give. It's not that she gave the biggest sum of money that day, but even now as I think about that, I was incredibly moved by her unselfishness. Here she was, struggling, struggling with this illness, struggling to get up every morning, yet she was the one looking out for our interests. Now why would she do that? Why would she do that? I think the reason she did it is because she was compelled by the love of Christ. Because she understood that Christ had died on the cross for her sins and that Christ had reached out to us, that he had looked out for our interest. Why would Epaphroditus risk his life for the sake of the Philippians? Why would he risk his life to deliver this money to Paul? Why would he do all these things? Because he was compelled by the love of Christ. Why would Timothy be able to say that he was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others? Why would he set aside his own own interest? Because he was compelled by the love of Christ. So let me ask you this today. Are you compelled by the love of Christ to set aside your own interest and meet the needs of others? Are you actively making it your goal to be aware of the needs of others? For example, if you are in a care group, are you aware of physical needs within your care group? Given where we live in Westchester, maybe there's not a lot of physical needs, but maybe there are. Are you aware of relational needs in your care group? Are you aware of spiritual needs in your care group? And the follow-up question to that, are you doing anything to meet those needs? What practical steps are you taking to demonstrate a genuine concern for the welfare of others? Now, for the record, meeting the needs of others might involve taking a risk, right? It was risky for Epaphroditus, and I would venture to say it was risky for Timothy too. It might be risky. It might mean that you have to risk some of your own money and that you have to genuinely sacrifice to meet the needs of others. It might mean that you need to risk some relational capital and ask some hard questions about someone's marriage or the way that their relationship with their kids is looking. Or it might mean that you need to risk going into uncharted territory that feels uncomfortable and asking spiritual questions. It might mean that you have to risk your own image and become more vulnerable so that others can see that you're a struggler along the path too. Here's the most practical way I can ask this this morning. Are you seeking to meet the needs of others? What risk might you need to take this week to meet the needs of other people? And listen, again, because of where we live, you might think, well, there's not a lot of needs here. And that may be true from a physical standpoint, but in this body, I promise you that there are many, even this morning, whose relationships are in the brink of breaking apart. There are many even here this morning who are struggling spiritually and don't even know where they stand with Christ. So you may say, well, I don't know if there's a lot of needs. I promise you in this congregation, there are many, many needs. The question is, will we do everything we can to meet those needs? But ultimately, I cannot stress this enough, meeting the needs of others must come from a love for Christ. Again, We see this with Timothy, we see it with Epaphroditus. Verse 30 makes it clear. He nearly risked his life. He nearly died for the work of Christ. 
It was the love of Christ that motivated me. Anytime we talk about love, we must first talk about the love of God. He loved us enough to send his son to die for us. His son died on the cross for our sins. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, let me encourage you, repent of your sins and trust Christ. Listen, as I was praying about this message this week, I was thinking, I don't know why God kept putting the young people on my heart. If you're new here in in middle school, I know we've just started recently adding the middle schoolers to the service or high schoolers. I want to make a special appeal to you this morning. If you have never trusted in Christ, know this, that there is hope in Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins. I'm not asking you to become a cultural Christian. I'm not asking you to just go along with it so you can please your parents or so you can please me. I'm asking you to give your life to Jesus Christ because he's the only hope there is. I'm not just asking young people, I'm asking every person. If you are not a follower of Christ, I'm telling you, there is no greater news than that Jesus died on the cross for sins. Repent and trust him. But if you've already responded to that love, the love of Christ should continue to motivate you and should continue to compel you to look out for the interest of others. For Timothy and Epaphroditus, it's obvious that they love Christ more than anything. And it's obvious that love for Christ was manifested and that they were genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. They were willing to set aside their own interests for others' sake. They were willing to risk for the sake of others. The question is, are we? Are we? Listen, I'm not saying that you need to name your next kid Epaphroditus when you have a kid. Right? Although I will admit, the more I've thought about it, Epaphro has kind of grown on me. I kind of like that. But I am saying that we should take their example seriously. I am saying that we should be genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. And I am saying, above all else, that we should be passionate about Jesus Christ. And that should change everything. So let's be like Timothy and Epaphroditus. But ultimately, let's make it our goal to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Timothy and Epaphroditus. We thank you for a man like Epaphroditus that, uh, frankly, we probably didn't know much about before we read this passage in Philippians. We're thankful for their example of set aside their interests for the sake of others. But ultimately, we're thankful. We're thankful that they love Jesus, and we want to respond by loving Christ as well. Father, we love you. And we're praying that we would love others because we love you. Christ's name, amen.